Hello everybody, welcome to Winging It Forward. I'm Dylan, this is my co-host Mac. Hello everyone, it's uh, great to uh, be with you again, and of course my friend Dylan. Today we're going to be talking about globalization, and uh, we have differing opinions, but at the same time we are good friends. Yeah. So we, uh, I do have pots and pans behind me that I'm getting ready to throw at him. He's thrown, he's done it before, folks. He's yeah, throwing things at me. He's got all these knots in his head. But uh, <laughs> we're going to have some fun. We will. We will. It's hard for me to, to rationalize being against globalization. So where, where do you come from? Because for me, it's always, the world has always been globalized. It's never been individuals working against each other. It's always been a community of people working towards a greater good. At least that's how I see it. So where do you come from um, in a stance of globalization? And how do you make your point against it? Let me give you my basic premise basic before premise. I okay. get in too deep here because I'm going to get real deep. <laughs> well, not real deep. I don't have my waders on, but you know, I look great in those waders. Yeah. You know, just so you know. And chicks dig them. But anyway, <laughs> my basic problem with globalization is that if you can't afford to get into the game, if you cannot be a player, then you should not be playing. I look at that from a social, economic, and political perspective, which we're going to talk about. Right. Okay. In other words, is a very, very tiny, small country, which is part of the UN, God help us all, <laughs> should they have the same voice as the United States? Should they have the same voice as China? Should they have the same voice as Russia? The big players. No, because if you go to Vegas or Atlantic City or any local casino, they got the the big players. Right, the high rollers. Right, yeah, Yeah. the high rollers. I don't think they should have as great a voice, and I don't think they should be included in these global decisions. See, I could see the argument that they shouldn't be allowed to have as much of a voice because they don't participate as much as other countries. But to say they shouldn't have a voice, I don't know if I'm comfortable with that. Because how else... Do they establish themselves if they're not allowed to play? You know, in a game where to do better, you have to be playing. If you can't start, then you can never do better. Well, America, when it uh, when it first started, it was not a global player. That's true. And what did they have to do in order to become part of the global scene? They had to earn it. They had to industrialize. Well, they had to industrialize. and But they had to earn that spot, and then they had to be part of the global solution that you talk about and they had to earn it i mean look at russia after after the wall went down it took them a long time to recover economically and politically and to get back into the game and then look at china china shut its borders for years and years and years and years right the cultural revolution yes exactly horrible horrible thing but I'm not certain I agree with that, but really, they they shut their doors to heal themselves. Well, it wasn't a healing; it was a cleansing. They burned sacred <laughs> texts. They killed people. They <laughs> well, sometimes you got to do what you have to do, and that sounds rather crass. <laughs> they eventually wanted to be become part of this global economic, political and uh, social society that the big players are in, and they are now there. But when you look at small countries, especially in South America, are you telling me that America should support some of these small countries? Well, I don't necessarily think we should support them. Well, we are. That's in in a sense, right? So let me just bring this economically for a second. A small country in South America... Well, larger country. Let's say Brazil. Brazil is one of the leading exporters of cotton. That's where most, if not all, of the cotton comes from, except from India, is Brazil. So people in Brazil pick cotton, send it to China to have it made into a shirt, and then send it to America to have the logo printed on it. In a way, we're supporting them, but it's not just we're lobbing money at them. We're paying for the shirts from China, who's paying for the cotton from Brazil. So it's this kind of uh, cyclical market where money goes and exchanges from hand to hand and helps people, honestly. In the past 50 years, 50 to 60 years, 
as the rise of globalization has taken off, 600 million people have been risen out of poverty around the world in places like Brazil and in El Salvador and in India. That's like 10% of the world's population. And of course, it's not the po- impoverished level in America, right? The I think WHO um, designates that the poverty line is living on more than $1.50 a day, which isn't much. But it's still pretty amazing that that has happened in the last 50 years. Well, that may be true. And I'd have to check your source on that. I will go on my little rant. Go for right it. Now. Since the wall came down, and I'm going to ask you a question. Mm-hmm. Since the wall came down, right around 1990 or so, and then throughout the 90s, nuclear weapons, due to globalization, became much, much, much more prevalent in some of these countries who are not big players. And I can name them for you if you want me to. I mean, you know, you look at countries like India where, you know, they have the caste system and they have nuclear weapons. In Pakistan and Iran. Pakistan. I agree. I agree. I mean, all these countries who are not huge players, especially when it comes to industry, but they have nuclear weapons. And I do I blame the Clinton administration because of that? Yes, because once again, the Clinton administration, they were they'd be on your side right now if Hillary and Slick Willie and <laughs> Crooked Hillary. I don't know. I'm not a political person, but I don't like either of them. And they're, they're the company that they are, are really just partners in. I don't even know if they're really married. But uh, <laughs> they're the ones who said, hey, we have to include everyone. So now everybody and their brother has a nuclear weapon. And they are not the major players. But they could start something very major where the ma- major players would have to clean up. There would be no cleaning up. Not from nuclear. So how do you explain that? I see it as, you know, the good old phrase mad, right? Mutually assured destruction. Yeah, but uh, hold on. Let me me make one other point. Okay. You're talking about, well, what did the figure you say? 600 million. 600 million people. Okay. Well, how many people live on this planet? About 7, 8 billion. Okay. Well, due to globalization, that 600 million figure is going to be nothing. Compared to vast destruction of the entire human race. And it's all because of globalization. Because we wanted to have everybody have the same piece of pie, even though they didn't earn it. Because they didn't stick around afterwards and help even do the dishes. They just walked out back and had their themselves, whatever the hell. They have a cigarette or whatever. I mean, many of these countries don't, but... And then they just said, hey, we've got nuclear weapons now. We're a big player. But in fact, they are not. Yes, they do have nuclear weapons, which does give them power. But due to mutually assured destruction, it allows them to remain safe. Imagine a country that didn't have the ability to retaliate with nuclear weapons to a country that has nuclear weapons and is bombing them to smithereens. What do you do? What do you do if you are the Maldives, right? You have no nuclear weapons. You have a very small army. And Russia comes and says, well, this uh, this land is ours now. And y- what are you going to do? Fight us? Nuke us? Well, too damn bad because it's ours. And we're just going to take it. Because of mutually assured destruction and because of this ability of respect of the nuclear weapon, that can't happen on a, on a mass scale. Of course, it does happen in Ukraine. What's that place in Ukraine? Help me out here. I'm not helping. You're not helping? I'm not helping you. Where's my pot or pan? I'm going to throw it at you right now. Where is it in Ukraine? The place that Putin came Mm -hmm. and sort of launched troops in and started a a separatist movement and all these different things. I think he even vacationed there. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, I I have to, on a side note, I mean, watching Putin walk around without a shirt on is just, I mean, you know. Gets me all hot and bothered. Oh. Oh, it just drives me nuts. I'm like, gosh, put a shirt on, will ya? Yeah, I know you're a former KGB guy, but I mean, huh? Putin's an entirely other subject we could talk about because he's just a brute. He's a horrible, horrible man. We should talk about him one of these days. We should, we should. But what's the smallest country in the world with the least population? It is a place called Monaco. Monaco, okay. 
Okay. Now, Monaco is about the size of where we live, the neighborhood in which we live. Oh, oh wow. I didn't even okay. realize it was that small. It's not very big. Their army could fit in the parking lot right out front here. Okay. And they'd march up another street. So are you telling me that Monaco and countries such as that, that small, should have the same capabilities as the United States of the America, uh, the United States of America, as Russia, as China, because they have not earned it. I think that they should be able to defend themselves. I think that they should not well, be able to be trampled. Well, let them on. come up with their own technology. America got the best scientists after World War II to come to America, the best German scientists, and not only did they, oh, but prior to World War II, actually, during World War II. Um, and and developed the atomic weapon to save lives, in my opinion, mm-hmm. and not to take lives. I think I, I truly believe that's why Truman used those bombs. It's a whole different subject. Mm. Again, he certainly didn't do it to save American lives. If you look at these smaller countries, they have not earned the right to be at the table. In your opinion. In my opinion. Yeah. And in the opinion, I think, of many. Do I agree with what President Trump said the other day about these people in Africa? Of course not. I don't agree with that. I mean, that's... But should a third world country, especially places like Africa and South America, where juntas are in control, should some of these small countries have nuclear weapons due to globalization? I mean, where the leaders change like the weather changes. I mean, give me a break, you know. They should not have the same stuff. And if they want it, then they have to go out just like America did, and they have to go out and find these folks and develop it on their own. But instead, what do the Clintons do in the 1990s? They do what with Iran? What did they do with Iran? Nuclear deal. Oh! (laughs) Iran! The people who held hostages. I'll never forget those days. Every day, Uncle Walter, Walter Cronkite, would come on the television and he'd say, this is the 312th day of uh, the American hostages in Iran. And Jimmy Carter sat on his thumbs like an idiot probably one of the worst presidents in America, and just smiled a lot, <laughs> and did nothing. Uh, instead, Ronald Reagan fixed it. On Ronald Reagan's first day in the White House, what does he do? The hostages are still in Iran, right? right? He gets on the phone, talks to, to what was it, uh, who was the uh, leader of Iran at that time? Anyway, he gets the guy on the phone and he says, look, I don't care about those hostages anymore. I'm sick and tired of this. But if you don't release them within the next 24 hours, I'm going to lay waste to Iran. I'm going to destroy it. I'm going to wipe it off the face of the earth. Okay? And guess what happens? They release the prisoners. They release the prisoners. That was the biggest thing and the first thing that Ronald Reagan did. Jimmy Carter had tried to do it nicely. He had tried. We want to include you in, you know, we're so sorry. Ah! (laughs) They weren't big players. Ronald Reagan didn't put up with any crap. Well, I don't like Ronald Reagan, but I can see your point there. How can you not like Ronnie Reagan? Uh, Trickle-down economics is one of the greatest systems that's ever been nah, derived. Yeah, we'll talk about that and, another time. But let's get on to some other things. Well, let, right? me, let me just counter your point real quick. No, um, you can't do that. Uh, just real quick. Should we not have access to computers in America? If they're made in America, yes, I think we should. But rare earths, which are one of the most important compounds in computing, are mostly mined in China. Yeah, so? So, without that trade, we wouldn't have computers. Let me just extrapolate again. We may have developed the technology from the nuclear bomb, but where do we get our plutonium from? Where do we get our radioactive isotopes from to build the nuclear bombs? Ask the Clintons. I'm not most of which isn't in America. Are you telling me that you can't find uranium in America? You can, but not at the rate to build... What, what, what did we have at our peak... 
4,500 warheads. And where did that come from, you're saying? Outside of America. Where? Let me just look it up real quick. I don't you know. You need to look it know. up? I want to know where. Because I know for a fact that the first uranium that they used in the, the, the initial atomic bombs came from America. It couldn't what? come from anywhere else no, because there was that. a world war going on. I believe that. Okay. And then uranium stayed in this country. And where did Russia eventually have to get it from? They have uranium in Russia. Yes. Yeah. They found out how the Americans did it. Yeah. And they did the same thing. But how much uranium do you need to build an atomic weapon? Well, I know you need to have the chemical reaction that occurs where the uranium is radically changed and it basically explodes and causes an entire eruption. So I guess not very much. I just, I'll go back to computers. We wouldn't have computers if not for globalization. We, we wouldn't be able to, we might have the ability to, to build schematics for them, but we don't have the rare earths necessary for everybody to have a computer. Who, who developed the very first home computer? The very first computer was developed by whom? And you can't look this up. I don't know. It was developed by a company called Xerox. Xerox, okay. Now, have you ever heard of Xerox? Xerox machines, yeah. Okay. It's like a photocopy. Xerox made copy machines. Yeah. Well, back in the, about 1973, 1974, there became a shortage out there of what? You got me. I don't know. Paper. Paper. Okay. Paper. Paper? And Xerox started looking at this, and they said, well, we, we have to, mm, man, this is going to be a little tricky. How are we going to sell our copy machines? Without paper. This was long before the recycling thing. Well, the recycling started not long thereafter, actually. Recycling paper. So Xerox made this computer. It was a home computer. They marketed it. They tried to market it at first at $10,000. $10,000. In 1960? No, this is probably 75. Oh, my. That was... 76. So about 25,000 today. Yeah. Yeah. Most likely. Okay. So, and they didn't find a market for it because everybody said, no, no, paper's going to come back or everything's going to be fine. We're going to work this out. But so then Xerox realized, well, we're not going to make any money building more of these computers. So we're going to invite some folks in. And who did they invite in? They they invited guys like Steve Jobs in. Mm. They invited guys like... Wozniak. Bill Gates. Bill Gates. Wozniak. All these guys in and said, hey, look, guys, this is what we have. What do you think? And computers, home computers especially, started with Xerox. Hmm. And then Wozniak and Jobs started Apple. Apple. Microsoft, under Bill Gates, started designing software for Apple, all, again, within America, where America then began to export these things. Right. And then IBM got into the game because uh, Bill Gates was able, Bill Gates, an American, Mm -hmm. was able to... To uh, he actually bought uh, DOS, which is disk operating system, mm-hmm. and gave it to IBM for nothing, and just said, "Hey, just put it on all your machines." IBM, which made its computers here in America, all right. And then uh, Microsoft became so big because they were working off of DOS, and then all their products, these computers that IBM was selling. And I know this because I'm from that time, Eric, because I was in, I, I had just gotten out of college and I started seeing these things, you know, uh, there was no more clack, 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 clack typewriters. Everybody was like, everybody started using these computers, which they couldn't do a lot with. So IBM got into the game and that's where you get the PC from, but, and that's where you get all the software from because, and that's how Gates made his billions all again once developed in America. However, then these manufacturers of computers, and then Michael Dell, of course. Right, we, Dell. we can't forget Mike Dell, yeah. who was a college student who was building computers in his own home. 
all these guys start to realize, hey, wait, you know, we're selling a, a home PC for $3,500 or $4,000 or $5,000. We can make it a lot cheaper. And what happens to those plants in America? Get shut down. Chaw. <laughs> And they go overseas. And then, and then their technology is exported. And before you know it, you can't pick up a laptop. I mean, you're sitting right now in front of an HP. Mm-hmm. Okay, Hewlett Packard. Hewlett Packard. Great American company, right? Mm-hmm. But where do you think that computer was made? India or China or Indonesia. Probably. One of the three. But prior to them doing this, the cost of living was higher in this country per mm-hmm. capita than it is today. And it's because the manufacturing base of this country has become so global that all to be inclusive so everyone can make a dollar fifty an hour. <laughs> and I think it's ridiculous. I say bring it back. America will prosper. More people will go to work. And uh, we can start making television sets again in this country. I mean, gee whiz. Well, you're looking at it like it's an us versus them. It is. It's not. It is. It's all for the greater good. Okay? I grew up playing uh, the greater good. Yeah. I don't even want to hear about the Human prosperity. Does that have no place in the world? Yeah. yeah, That's a bunch of horseshit. (laughs) I won't say that. That's a bunch of hoo-ha. Yeah. let's let's, let's Let's give everybody a trophy. Okay, let's give, give everybody let's a give trophy. everybody a participation trophy. Let's reward those who don't do their best and strive forward to do their best. The same thing that everybody else is getting. So you're telling While me while everything that comes from America is manufactured and produced overseas. You're telling me that a kid in China who doesn't go to school and works in a sweatshop for a dollar fifty an hour isn't working hard, doesn't deserve recognition for his work. You're telling me that the people who do still pick cotton in Brazil, backbreaking labor, don't deserve any recognition for what they do? They don't deserve to even have the job that they have? I'm not saying they don't deserve it. I'm saying that if they really wanted to, they could do better. Have you ever heard of a guy named Carnegie? Yeah, Andrew Carnegie. Oh my gosh, you've heard of him. <laughs> Here's a kid who comes from Scotland to this country. He's got a couple of nickels in his pocket. And he goes to work in what? As a clerk. Mm-hmm. as Because he only had, what, a third, fourth grade education. Mm-hmm. And he was probably making a nickel an hour. And he was living behind the shop where he worked. And what did he eventually do? Railroads? Or was that Railroads, else? steel. Okay. He started a monopoly. And he became the richest man in the world. We look at people like this mm-hmm. who have overcome things in other countries. I have a friend from Brazil, okay, who did not pick cotton but washed dishes in Brazil, okay? A very, very, very dear friend of mine who grew up in poverty. And what did he do one day? He said, I can't live like this anymore. I have to get the hell out of here. I'm going to starve just like my parents starved. And I'm going to go to America. And I'm going to go to school. So he comes to this country. He continues to work as a dishwasher. He goes to a community college. And then he goes to a college. And then he goes to graduate school. And then he ends up getting his PhD. And now he teaches computer science at Texas A&M. Or is it Texas Tech? It's one of those. Mm. But anyway, good friend of mine. No, it's tech. It's definitely Texas Tech. All right, but he got his PhD from University of Texas at Austin. Okay, his first point of entry, obviously, was Texas, so he stayed there. Right. Do I think that people in South America can leave those cotton fields and struggle and come across the border and? make a way for themselves absolutely and i've seen this happen so many times and globalization in my opinion let me finish okay okay <laughs> damn kids i don't <laughs> like kids globalization is once again and, and, and we had this, this 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 very similar discussion on our last episode 
it makes people lazy that hey I can live on a dollar fifty an hour I can live on that I can live a really good life I mean why don't I just get in my car and drive to Mexico I could live a great life in Mexico you know could drink cerveza all day long, you know, do my online classes, <laughs> but I don't choose to do that. I choose to stay here in America where I'm continually challenged. So let me just say, I'm all for equality of opportunity. I don't think equality of outcome is a good thing, right? I don't think everybody should get the same outcome, but I do think everybody should be able to have the same opportunity. That being said, what if everybody who picked cotton in Brazil, moved to America, and tried to become the next person in the 1%. Where would the cotton come from? What if everybody who manufactured computers in China decided they wanted to become an entrepreneur, like like the guy who started uh, Jack, Jack something, who started Alibaba, and they stopped making computers in the factories? The foundation for society has to be strong to allow people to get to the top and become part of the 1%. If you don't have anybody to employ in your business, how is it a successful business? While we should definitely reward those who do strive to get to the top, we shouldn't just forget about those that do the menial labor that is required for society to function. I don't think we should give them trophies, but I do think we shouldn't attempt to take away what we've what they have. You know, we shouldn't attempt to say those 600 million people who've been risen out of poverty, well, we're just gonna try and bring the jobs back to America. If we do, they their lives will collapse. They won't have an income. And maybe, maybe it will drive them to success. But what if it doesn't? What if they end up starving on the street and homeless and end up dying? Then I don't they know. do. Then they do. Then they do. Well, that's not very compassionate. I'm not a very compassionate guy. <laughs> you know? I think if you go out there and bust your butt every day, you deserve to be rewarded. And for those who sit at home and do nothing and twiddle their thumbs and get paid by the government to do so, I think is a disgrace. And we are just compelling that welfare society and a global market and bringing problems close to us. But before that, I, I have a point to make Okay. Here. It's not just America where people can go. Look at Germany today. Right, and Finland and, and Norway and a bunch and, of European and, countries. And, and, and look back in the 18th century, the early 18th, or the, probably 18, or 1725, 1730, 34, in France. People grew tired of working from home. They had nothing. So what did they start? Revolutions. Not a revolution. Well, what France. kind of revolution? An industrial revolution. An industrial revolution. Yeah. It was these poor people who started the industrial revolution. They were the Andrew Carnegie's of France. Right. And they were the ones who said, hey, look, wait a minute, I can get this and this, and I can I can get 12 women together, and we can start making these things on a mass scale. This eventually led to... The same kind of thing happening in Britain. Right. So where did people start moving to? To Britain to work in the factories. Okay. So it's not just America, but those things are still going on. While the the the, the French Industrial Revolution and the British Industrial Revolution are two incredibly different types of revolutions. They involve the same type of people. Craftsmanship versus speed. Craftsmanship, exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, in, in, uh, in, in France, they were doing very delicate, very things, because they wanted to sell them to the rich. Mm -hmm. And they were poor people, and they knew where the money was. I mean, if you were to get into, in, into sales right now, okay, say you're going to get into sales, would you rather sell $10 million medical machines, or would you rather be calling people on the phone selling them magazines? I've done the call on people, and I would definitely go with the $10 million medical machine. Yeah, you see what I mean? Because yeah. you sell three or four of those a year. You're set. And you're set for you know, your family. Oh, man, you got a beautiful home on the beach. So they recognized that. The British instead said, hey, wait a minute. We can mass produce things 
like pots and pans that I'm getting ready to throw another one at you here in a minute. <laughs> we can do all of this stuff on a grander scale and we can make them affordable to people, not just people in, in England, but people throughout Around the world and Europe, at the, which at the time was basically the world. Yes, yeah. that was the world. Yeah. And then America, and then of course that started, those products started coming to America and the colonists have been used to those products in many cases. And uh, but eventually, then that would lead to the American Industrial Revolution because they were, became too reliant on the British. And then they started doing the same thing that the folks did in France, that the folks did in Britain, that the folks eventually did in America. They pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and said, "Hey, look, we can do this ourselves. I can bring myself out of poverty, and I can do this." Right. So no, now do I have? A tremendous amount of empathy for people who don't have clean water to drink. Yes, I do. Do I have a tremendous amount of empathy for people who do not have proper medical care? Absolutely, I do. Do I have a tremendous amount of respect for the Gates Foundation and what they're doing right now? Yes, but that all came from one thing. And that all came from America and other big powers who are providing that aid to people and hopefully then giving them a, a shot at providing for themselves. I, I think you, you make a very compelling argument. It just, I'm still stuck on the fact that for every one Andrew Carnegie, you need about a thousand people who are willing to build that railroad. Well, that's the way it is. I know, and I'm the point I make is that we shouldn't only reward the one percent. We shouldn't just give people things because they're doing it because they're doing a swell job. But we should respect the fact that we need them to function as a society. Yes. Right. Yeah, and and those workers should be treated fairly. Right. There's no question about that, and that's why I am I am actually. Uh, while I'm a, a conservative to moderate kind of guy, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit pro-union mm. because I do believe that all workers, and you want to globalize something, hey, globalize unions. Yeah. All right? Yeah. Now, that's one thing I would agree with. Yeah. You know, when Nike makes its shoes and... For $2 uh, a uh, shoe know, and sell yeah. them for 100 like, <laughs> holy fuck. I mean, cheapers. Uh, America should do something to, to quell that terrible thing that's going on over there in, in Asia uh, and, and perhaps unionize. But, you know, who's going to tell them what to do? And they're an American company. But there are there's so many other factors other than just economic. Right. Let's get into social or political. Okay. Well, let's let's look at what globalization has done has done when you know when i grew up i mean I'm, I'm a product of the 60s and 70s okay i'm an old man i'm almost 55 years old as all of you know and of course my pal dylan's only 20 20 jeepers oh goodness <laughs> but we didn't have to worry in those days because there wasn't this globalization thing about walking out our front door or going to a concert or going to a football game or going to a, an event or walking into the World Trade Center, which I've been to three times and have to worry about getting killed. I do believe that globalization has led to religious and cultural conflicts because things have become too open argue with me about what when the Clintons began with this whole globalization issue and NAFTA started and mm -hmm. America's borders started becoming softer mm -hmm. how do you argue against something like 9-11 which killed more people than um, Pearl Harbor and not only that which was resulted in a 14 going on 15, 16 year war. I mean, there's still kids dying in Afghanistan today. Right. Uh, let's let's trace it back. Let's trace back Osama bin Laden to where we where America first encountered him. 
right? He was our ally. 1970s, Cold War. We gave him weapons to fight against the Russians. That's correct. It wasn't, no, it wasn't. Or, a, actually, it was much later. You know, when the Russians were in Afghanistan, that was in, not uh, Cold War. in the it 80s. Was, it was a little, little later. Um, but, but it was it during was, the Cold War. It, yeah, it was a proxy war, right? Similar to Vietnam, similar to correct. Korea. Mm-hmm. So we gave Osama bin Laden weapons and aid. That's correct. And allowed the war to destroy the country. Yes. Then, when he asked for our help, to rebuild, not not Osama bin Laden specifically, but when the resistance that we backed asked for our help to rebuild Afghanistan, what did we do? Bye bye, no help for you. We we did our thing. You can just deal with it. Yeah, I I agree with that. But now you're kind of going against your globalization argument. But yes, America does have a tendency, from a historical standpoint, to say bye bye to the folks who've helped it. I mean, if, yeah. if we look at Vietnam, yeah, for example. I mean, uh, Ho Chi Minh fought alongside Americans while kicking the Japanese out of Vietnam during mm-hmm. World War II. And what did Harry Truman do? Did he did he respond to those letters from Ho Chi Minh? No, he did not. No, he didn't. Mm-mm. So Ho went to whom? The, during the Cold Russians. War. He went to the Russians. Yeah. And the Czechoslovakians and mm-hmm. everybody else. And then as a socialist, he became a communist. Mm-hmm. And... We see the same thing with Iran and the Iran-Contra thing in Iraq when we when America backed Iraq to fight against Iran. Mm-hmm. And so America, yes, does have a long history. There is no question about that. But I would argue that that's not globalization at its core, right? That's not countries working together to unify themselves into a greater global state. That's America saying, okay, well, this serves our interests, so we're just gonna we're just gonna tweak this nod, this this little nozzle here, we're gonna flip this valve here, and we're gonna destroy your country. That's not globalization. Yeah, but globalization had been opened up. I mean, Vietnam, nobody was worried about Vietnamese getting in an airplane, okay, and flying in and killing people. Right. All right. In Korea, nobody was worried about that. But once this idea of globalization began after the Cold War ended, which was supposed to really help things, it only sparked globalization. And the Clinton administration took full advantage of that over eight years. And they they kind of figured, hey, the, the, the Cold War is over. Hey, we can all get along great. We'll all just hold hands and sing Kumbaya. Woo, you know, everything's going to be wonderful. But instead, we get the problems we have today. Because of our actions, not because of globalization. Oh, I don't know about that. I, I, I think you, you're, you could take one action and you could certainly say that bin Laden was cheated. Yeah. There's no question in my not mind. Not in that... By no means, and and he was cheated, but but he was cheated by William Jefferson Clinton, who right. was too busy uh, covering up the Monica Lewinsky affair, <laughs> then to pick up the phone and talk to Bin Laden and say, "Hey, look, thank you so much. We're going to help you right. rebuild, and we're going to help you." And then what did Bin Laden do? He never heard back, and so he got pissed off, and he said, "Hey, we're still here. Yeah, we helped you guys kick the Russians out of here." And end pretty much the Cold, the Cold War. War in that area. And now you're ignoring us, so we need recognition. So what are we going to do? We're going to kill what? How many? Over three thousand people. And by no means are either of us justifying his actions, but I think it's important to take a look at why they occurred. Never would it have been okay for that to happen in any circumstance. But if you can get inside the history of why it happened, I think it's a good look at the the things that not only America, I mean, Russia has done it, uh, England has done things, France has done things, China has done things, not to the extent that America has. But I don't think any of them have to do with the globalization that I envision, right? Yes, but would you agree, though, that due to globalization, terrorism has increased throughout the world? Due to open borders. The terrorism I saw as a kid, okay, my grandparents, my mother's parents lived in London, and we would visit them, 
And, of course, my father's parents were from the northern part of Free Ireland, uh, from a place called Monaghan. And my grandfather, as I think I've told you before, was was a member of the IRA. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in the 70s, in the early 70s especially, I think the last time uh, that I really noticed it was 1974, when we were trying to get into and go see... Westminster Abbey, or trying to go in and see uh, uh, the Tower of London, or, or things of that nature. Okay, even the changing of the guard sometimes at Buckingham Palace, and there would be terrorist threats, IRA terrorist threats. But that's the only terror that was going on in the world at that time that I can track. Mm. Now we see terror everywhere i mean give me one country in europe that has not had had a terrorist event Mm -hmm. i can't yeah and and why is that it's because globalization has become is is caused religious and cultural conflicts that are not going to be solved even in your generation certainly not in my generation because i'll be dead well hopefully by midnight (laughs) you know (laughs) But you see what I'm saying? Well, let me let me ask you something real quick. Would you consider the slaughtering of thousands, if not tens of thousands, of Islamic people during the golden age of Islam by Genghis Khan terrorism? No, I wouldn't. I'd be. I would call it an act of war. Would you consider the Crusades launched by Mediterranean Europe on Jerusalem by terrorism, Pope, which was started by Pope Urban II? Right. I would call it a holy war. And yes, I don't agree with the Crusades and what, what, what Pope Urban II did because he would go out into Europe and find these pagans and say, hey, look, you know, come and fight for us. They were mercenaries. Mm-hmm. And we will grant you, the Catholic Church will grant you everlasting life. I don't agree. I don't think that was terrorism. That's recruiting but I would suggest, however, if you want to see terrorism in America, you would look at the American Revolutionary War and what the right. militia did. Right. I think that definitions are tricky because I would be comfortable saying that what happened in Mongol- under Mongolian reign in China and in the Middle East and partially into Europe would easily be classifiable as terrorism. The current state of Muslim extremist jihad could be described as acts of war. I just don't see... The divide there. I think it's murky territory. I think it's just, it's an area of gray that is undefinable in a way. People killing other people for religious beliefs, for power disputes, for anything. It's just people killing other people. And I don't think that globalization has really radicalized that to the sense that everybody's trying to kill everybody. There is no doubt easier access to the tools with which to commit these crimes. However, this mindset of us versus them of people against people, has always been and will always be part of human nature. It's the human condition. It's yes. the human condition. You go back to, tr- <clears throat> to to prehistoric eras where Homo sapiens were coming out of, of Africa, going into Europe, meeting with Neanderthals. We wiped out the Neanderthals through breeding, interbreeding, and through war. We either killed them or fucked them out of extinction, right? This is nothing new. You go back to the disputes in China over the, the dynasties. These people have been warring against each other, trying to declare their superiority for generation after generation after generation. You have the Ting, you have the Yang, you have the eight or nine dynasty wars. What were there, eight or nine dynasties that announced their their superiority? I just don't see how globalization and people seeing everybody else as other humans as aiding these acts, right? Because that's the core of what I'm getting at, is that when you do see somebody across the Atlantic Ocean in Mongolia as another human being, as your neighbor, it becomes harder and harder and harder to do these things to those people. Once people do start holding hands and singing Kumbaya and seeing each other as, oh, you're a human, I'm a human, he's a human, she's a human. It becomes infinitesimally more hard to commit these horrible things. Look, I'm an old man. I mean, you just went on for 45 minutes with some rant that 
I really didn't understand what the hell you were talking about. Look, these things that have been going on are part of the human condition because of an us versus them mentality. So as soon as we can disassemble the us versus them, no longer will these things occur. (laughs) How in the world are you going to... The human condition begins when? I mean, if we look back in time, what was the first civilization? Sumeria, Indus River Valley, I mean, the... the 3,500 BCE. Right. Okay, due Not to climate change at 5,500 BCE. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And, and what, what's the first thing these folks started to do once, over generations, once they got down to the Tigris Euphrates River Valley, what's the first thing they started to do? Agriculture? Oh, of course, yeah. I mean, after all okay. of that, after they started harnessing and tr- con- controlling their environment... Which, and they were the first to do so. Right. Um, what What else did they start doing? They started trading. They started trading. But then they also started doing what? They started competing. Right. And with competition comes... Strife? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Strife. It's part of the human condition. And when, when competition is taken out of the equation, which is part of the human condition. And if you want to change the human condition, I say, God help you. Good luck. I'm a realist. Mm -hmm. I know that the human condition, if it hasn't changed since 3500 BCE, if it hasn't changed from the Battle of Kadesh, right? all right, which was the very first known battle, uh, you know, b- between the Hittites and, and uh, Ramses II, if it hasn't changed since then, regardless of Gandhi, regardless, I mean, who's an incredible person, regardless of folks like Martin Luther King, uh, regardless of all these, uh, Nelson Mandela, I, I can go on and on and on and on. Woodrow Wilson, I right. could even include him as a peacekeeper, and he wanted to help change the human condition. If if these folks couldn't do it, what makes you think that you can or any group can? Let me ask you a question. No, I just asked you a question. Well, let me counter counter that question with a question. When's the last time a European nation declared war against a European nation? World War I. Oh, no, World War Two. Wor- world War Two. But prior to that, World War One. And then what happened? The EU was formed. A conglomerate of nations working for a greater good, combining their scientific knowledge, combining their industrious resources, combining their their work ethics, combining their militaries in some senses. They haven't declared war against each other since because not only do they see each other as neighbors, but they see each other as partners in the same fight. Yeah, right? but economically, the European Union is... You 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 must agree that it's economically starting to break it's starting down. to break down because of Brexit, which is and politically it's starting to break down as well because you have one country thriving and now it, it, we're becoming cyclical again here because mm. you have Germany is thriving. I mean, more people are moving to Germany now than used to want to move to Australia, for example. Right, I agree. Okay, it's cyclical, and uh, so then you got your Brexit. I mean. If not a show by arms, certainly a showdown by money. And ideas. And politics. Yeah. Okay, because do do all the prime ministers of, of, of all of Europe, do they all get along? Not to the greatest extent. No, they don't. <laughs> now, they don't resort to war, okay, but they... Result to economics and politics and say, I'm sorry, you're in Paris today, brother. Your money's no good here, mm. and nor are you, especially if you're an American. Yeah. Okay, so I see what you're saying. I'm just not buying. Because, you know, let's, let's, let's take a look, first of all. Let's look at America from the same kind of point of view. Uh the Clinton administration and, and Al Gore, and I've seen his house, by the way, in Nashville, <clears throat> and I know why his wife divorced him. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Al Gore, yeah, great. They set up this thing called NAFTA. Okay, you're familiar with NAFTA. Right. Which combined whom? Mexico, 
America and Canada. That's correct. Yeah. All right. So they were seeking to do the same thing that they promoted in Europe. And what has been the result of that? I honestly couldn't tell you. I haven't looked into it very much, but I know that we don't consider ourselves part of North America. I mean, it, what, is, what does Canada make outside of donuts? Actually, I looked this up. They export half a trillion dollars worth of things every year. Like what? Cars, food. What kind of cars? Two. What kind of cars are they making in Canada? They're making automobiles. What kind? What what brand? Look, I couldn't tell you, but I know that's the no, majority no, no, of no, their exports. No, 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 they're not making Fords or Chevys, I would imagine. No, but they are they are making cars. And, and I'd like to know what kind of cars they make. Are they making television? I don't know. Okay, and what are they making in Mexico? Pollution. They're making VW. VWs. Which has now become part of an American conglomerate, mm. right? But... What has NAFTA done for America other than bring it down to their level, okay? I wouldn't go that far. Bringing America down through trade and commerce? Through these two countries that America has supported to try to bring them up. That was the initial goal, to globalize North America, right? Right. Including Mexico, America, in Canada. Now, wh- how has that helped America? I want you to tell me how that has helped America. I couldn't tell you how it specifically helped America, but I could tell you that the good of, what is it? Um, have you ever watched A Beautiful Mind? I'm sorry? Have you ever seen A Beautiful Mind? Yes. Uh, so game theory, right? Economic game theory. What's good for the whole outweighs what's good for the individual. <clears throat> you remember the theorem that I forget the name, but the theorem that he came up with, right? You had four women and four guys. You had, or f- no, five women, five guys. One of the women was incredibly attractive. The other four, they weren't, right? If every single one of those guys did what was best for them, nobody would succeed, right? The girl would get turned off, her friends would want her to leave. Nobody would get laid. But if they all did what was best for them and the group, everybody would win. Everybody would get a girl. Everybody would go home, have a good time. And I think that that theory can be applied to world politics and world economics. I think that's a bunch of horseshit. I mean, not everyone should get a trophy. Not everyone should get a trophy. I'm not, I'm not, uh, hold on, hold okay. on, hold on. Okay. Yeah, you're talking about It's a Beautiful Mind and, and these guys who want to get laid uh, by these beautiful women. <clears throat> One beautiful woman. Huh? One beautiful woman, four attractive women. What? One of them was ex- exaggeratedly beautiful and the other ones weren't. Okay, but you still think they should have the same opportunity as the others without trying to, to help themselves. Well, I'm not saying... I mean, there are many things that they could do to help themselves become more attractive. But it's not... I it's, mean, it's, I can't do that at my age <laughs> to become more attractive, and I haven't been late since 1972. Right. But... <laughs> <laughs> but, but anyway. Look, it's not that they should do what's best for everybody instead of doing what's best for themselves. It's that the best success comes when they do what's best for the group and themselves. When you just do what's good for you, oftentimes it leads you to a pitfall. But when you consider what's good for you and what's good for your neighbors and what's good for your society and your civilization and the world, all of a sudden you're doing many more things that boost not only you but everybody around you. And then that that uh, inspires cooperation for other people to do the same thing. Adam Smith wasn't wrong with the invisible hand when he said that everybody working in their own best interest would move society forward. He was just leaving something out in that when you did what was best for you and what was best for everybody else, you got pushed even further in the right direction. Yeah, but I, 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 again, and, I, and, um, and you know, Dylan, I, you're a great guy, but I, and I hate to throw stones, but I think this is just utopian. Okay. I mean, if we look at <clears throat> See, there's a plane crash in uh, Far Rockaway, uh, I don't know, Upper Canada, way up there. Mm. 
and guys are coming home from the mines and they're playing crashes. And I think there was even a movie about this. What do the survivors do initially? Do they all take care of each other initially? The person who is the strongest is the one who's going to survive. And all we have to do is look at nature and we can explain all of this, all of these things. You know, when I was a kid, I mean, I grew up in Minnesota, Mm -hmm. you know, and you, when you went hunting, all right, and no, I never shot a deer before, Hmm. all right, but I would go out with my, especially my two older brothers, and if they were to, to, to shoot a deer, would they shoot a young deer or the old deer that they knew was not going to survive the winter, what would they do? The old deer. The old deer. Yeah. Because they knew that that deer was not going to survive. Okay, so they would pick off that old deer. And in nature, we see this all the time. It's survival of the fittest. And humans are not that far, and I'm certain you will agree no, I, on I, that. Yeah. We're not far from animals. We are animals. We are animals. Yeah. So why why give everyone everything uh, in order to survive when the strongest are the ones who should survive? Well, let me let me address your scenario. Right, you're you're hunting with two other people, and both of them are trying to kill the old buck. Correct. Why doesn't one of them try to kill the young one and the other one try to kill the old one? Both doing what's best for them and what's best for each other. Because the the young one is going to survive the winter. The old buck is not going to survive the winter. But no, but he's 170 see, pounds and he's going to feed us. But you see what I mean? For the winter time. If you had if you had a plane crash and you had everybody aggressively trying to defend themselves and live on their own and and start start surviving for themselves or you had people that okay i know how to fish okay well i'll spend all my time fishing if you guys build a shelter yeah that sounds good and if if i'm fishing the entire time getting food and you're building a shelter the entire time getting food why don't you forage for berries so we can also have berries to eat what what do you think is a better survival strategy everybody dispersing off into their own individual selves or people collectively working together to reach the best possible scenario for everybody. I see what you're saying. And that's a communal idea. Right. There's there's no question about that. But I would suggest that the guy fishing who's out there all day long in the sun, fishing, Mm -hmm. fishing, fishing, providing food. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, how long does it take to build a lean-to or a hut? Mm Mm-hmm. A few hours. Yeah, a few hours. How long does it take? I mean, let's talk about six people here. Right. All right? Well, let's break it down to six people. And and this would be a further demonstration of the human condition. So this guy is out fishing, and he's got a spear, and he's, because, of course, he doesn't have any line or anything, so Mm -hmm. he has this makeshift spear, and he's out there, and he's fishing, and there are sharks in the water, so he's risking his life. Well, people... The, the, there's one person person building a shelter. There's a couple of people uh, finding berries, and there's a couple of people finding uh, water. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, this guy fishing says to himself, "I'm providing all the food, and there's water. I know where the water source is, and I can build my own shelter. Why don't I just take my makeshift spear. fishing spear?" and move down the beach and uh, set up my own place. And then the people who are building the home, all right, or the cabin or whatever the hell it is, they say, we're re- we've become really good at this. Why don't we just stay here? The people find the water. I mean, everybody kind of finds their own individual niche that they can survive on. And they eventually break apart. And we see this, or if, if they don't break apart, then they get into groups initially. Because initially, that six is going to break into three, right? It's going to break into two groups of three. And we see this on the, all these stupid, idiotic reality television <laughs> shows. We see these people break into groups, mm-hmm. right? 
And then eventually, what has happened to those groups? What eventually happens to those groups? I haven't watched reality TV in a long time. I couldn't tell you. One person breaks off and says, hey, I can live by myself. Because I'm not, I'm, 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 I'm doing more than anybody else is here. I'm striving more. And you, in the meantime, you're sitting back. Hey, you find this wild marijuana growing out <laughs> on this island. And you're back there. Hoo-hoo-hoo. Yay. Being stranded is great. In the meantime, I'm out there busting my butt. Well, there's nothing preventing. It is part of that. And it eventually compels the others to do what? To break off into their own groups in, in your scenario. Exactly. Yeah. It, I just think we're coming at it. It's from, the human condition. But it's two different ideas about the human condition. So I, I, I think that there's value in your point. I do think that that's one aspect of psychology. But uh, it, was, it was really, really great. I'm glad we had this discussion. And I do value your opinion on, on, the, on the importance of the individual, on the importance of self-reliance and... The idea that the idea behind capitalism, right? The fittest survive, and it's harsh, but it's nature. And I can see where you're coming from. Yeah, I mean, it's if if you know, when I was a kid, we would watch uh, nature shows, and uh, was it difficult to see that crocodile jump out of the water and grab a zebra by the neck and kill it and drag it into the water? It was very difficult. But it's survival. Mm. And uh, globalization, in my opinion, it slows that process. Not, not just slows it, but it once again makes folks complacent. And if we go back to the liberal point of view, and I could, we could, we're going to look at a lot of different subjects. Yeah. And the complacent nature that they promote that side of the aisle promotes drives me insane and the over aggressive self-deterministic side that the other side of the aisle promotes kind of gets me up riled too i i understand that and i appreciate but nonetheless i'm glad to hear it out and i'm glad to have these discussions i really am yeah it's fun it is fun so uh we're gonna try something new this week Going to do a little weekly roundup of the the week's current events. So let's start off with uh, shithole. How do you how did you feel about shithole? <laughs> oh my goodness! You know, as you know, I'm, I'm I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. I I lean towards the conservative side, but mm. I think the president has to get his head out of his ass. Jeez, tell me about it. And you know. Somebody's got to take away his Twitter account. <laughs> Somebody's got to take away his voice. He is not presidential. I think we just need to sew his lips together. And, and while I was never a big fan of President Obama, I'll be perfectly honest with you. I missed the guy because <laughs> he was presidential. Mm-hmm. And um, I, uh, I'm begging Connie Rice uh, to run for president and the Republican Party uh, to at least launch a campaign against uh, uh, President Trump. Of course, she won't do that. And uh, now, good of the party, right? Oprah's throwing. Well, uh, not really throwing well, her hat. But, God, I. But Trump, yeah, it's, he, I mean, he his skin is too thin. Mm. That's what I think. He just. I mean, people have been saying. I've heard a lot of people say, "Oh, it's racist and it's horrible and." We, I can't believe he said this. I can. Look at look at his history. This is nothing new to me. This is just par for the course. All right. You would hope that he would have grown. That was that was my hopes. You know, I wasn't happy when he got elected, but I would hope that he would be able to grow into the position. Right. He'd come to respect the the power that he held, but he clearly hasn't. You know, mm-hmm. he's clearly just gone down a self destructive spiral. That yeah. the left is condoning again calling him satan and the right is enabling and calling him the the god-given you know the next christ but yeah but not all of the right and not all of the left you know and not all of the left i mean you know yeah the economy is the best it's been in many many years 
I think that's a result of, of, of a big part of the previous administration. Mm-hmm. But Donald Trump, I, I uh, oh my. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. just, I mean, where is Richard Nixon when you need him? <laughs> I'm not, not a kidding. You know, I mean, I, I don't know. What else? Um, don't uh, you mentioned Oprah? I think that would be a disaster. I think, as I mentioned in the previous episode, we are going way, way, way down a path that I don't think is healthy for the nation. Where we have these figureheads and these icons running for office. You know, would I rather have a career politician in there who is corrupt and knows the and knows the ins and outs of Congress? No. But would I rather have some person who doesn't know how the political process go, ha, e- exists, let alone how to use it and utilize it to their own, uh, utilize it for the best of the country. That's that's worse in my opinion, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, <sighs> I, I, I agree that, uh, I agree with you. I mean, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think Oprah Winfrey is even gonna run. I hope she doesn't. But it was a nice speech. It was a very nice speech, I'll give it and, up. And uh, I think Oprah has helped many, many, many people in this country. And I remember as a college student in Maryland, as an undergraduate back in uh, the early, early 80s, and uh, she was on a talk show in at WBAL in Baltimore. I, I'm pretty sure that's what it was, <laughs> called People Are Talking with Richard Cher. And she was the dialing for dollars girl. Oh, wow. And she looks so much different now than she did, she did then. And she, people were captivated by her story, and 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 she eventually then moved to Chicago and got her own show. Right. But I have a tremendous amount of respect for Oprah Winfrey and how she's helped other people. Do I think she would make a good president? No, I don't. Right. And I may have been a little harsh. I mean, I don't think she'd be the worst president we've ever had. And I also have respect for her from where she's come from to where she's gone. To being oh, one she's of from she's she's the most one of the most influential people on the planet. Yeah. She's the richest woman on the planet. Mm-hmm. It's really impressive, and I I I praise her for that. Mm-hmm. But I just don't think that that's what we need in our political system. Yeah. Well, uh, did you hear about the F fifty twos? Another little Trump tidbit. He uh, he he claimed that we had sold many many planes to Norway, specifically F fifty twos. I haven't heard anything about that. I can't comment on it. I haven't heard anything about it. I just thought it was funny because point A, the F fifty two does not exist. Yeah, there's no, I've there's no such thing. Of, that's what I'm saying. I've never heard of them. F fifty, F fifty two. Yeah, I I saw. People, I've heard of a B fifty two. Which I've saw people coming to his defense saying, "Well, that's what he meant. That's what he meant." But as you know, we haven't made those since like the nineteen sixties. Oh, I don't know if they were even made then. Right. B-52s were made primarily during World War II. So, if you're going to lie, at least lie well. I mean, and maybe I think that's why people like him a lot of times because they know when he's lying. But it just is an embarrassment. Uh, On the shithole thing, he said, well, we want people from Norway. We want people from Germany, the Scandinavian countries, the good countries, the non-African, non-shithole places. What in your right mind would make you think they would want to come to this country in the current state it's in? Thank you guys so much for tuning in. We hope you had a great time listening. Uh, you can email us at, at wingingitforward at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter under the handle at Perry Dill, P-E-R-R-Y underscore D-Y-L. Uh, it's been a pleasure, Mac. I had a lot of fun, Dylan. I'll be back to in, in Ethiopia next week. <laughs> You know, waiting for my globalization treats. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, in the meantime, it was a pleasure to be with everyone. And uh, obviously, we look forward to hearing from you. All right. This is Dylan out. Good night, everybody.